A specter is haunting the world, the specter of fully automated poverty capitalism. Fully automated poverty capitalism presents itself, in some ways, as a kind of cultural dissociation, a seemingly exponential removal of the culture from the material, an immersion in the social symbolic that conceals by its overgrowth, a social rot. The robots will now make our art, our movies, our novels, our poems. The robots will teach our children. The robots have not yet learned how to stock the shelves at Walgreens or make espresso. The robots have failed, so far, to replace the truckers. The small hands of children are still needed in the sweatshops. Some jobs are safe. Go to work. Rest assured that the poetry is automated. The climate may be doomed and your future grandchildren will catch fire. But by then the robots will have learned to do their jobs as well. Shakespeare is being rewritten by math. And that math will eventually fix climate change. Math is magic. It solves all problems. Locust Radio. feet they firmly planted on the earth they did straightened spine of the back their neck in pride they raised and they cried now i humanity king of the earth and living creatures all feared their cry and the pride evident in their roar conquered the living creatures and humanity herded all creatures in march and them humanity surpassed and humanity became their ruler since they had freed their hands from the yoke of the earth. Thus mounds and the soil in obedience to humanity they submitted, and the mountain in obedience to humanity they submitted, and the seas and the river in obedience to humanity they submitted, and darkness and light to obeying humanity they submitted, and so did the groves and the wind. And fire a slave to humanity it became, 
and living creatures, all that there was, as slave to humanity they became. In the water, on earth, in the sky, all that they were, wherever they were. And the rule of the world they became. And king of water and soil they were ensured to be. And the world under their domain it became completely. And time in their claws of power it placed completely. And the gold of the sun in their name they coined. Since they had freed their hands from the yoke of the earth. Thus the shape of the earth they turned. And the river and the sea with their seal they branded into bondage. And everywhere the realm of the earth they battled hand to hand in victory. And the earth at once and all they recreated with their hands. And God too they created with their hands, with soil, with wood, and with stones. And in awe they looked on their creation, seeing that the beauty of their hands' creation was matched by no other. And to it they prayed since it was the miracle of their hands, once from the yoke of the earth. Thus the shape of the earth they turned, and the river and sea with their seal they branded into bondage, and everywhere the realm of the earth they battled hand to hand in victory, and the earth at once and all they recreated with their hands. And God too they created with their hands, with soil, with wood, with stone. And in awe they looked on their creation, seeing that the beauty of their hands' creation was matched by no other. And to it they prayed, since it was the miracle of their hands. Once from the yoke of the earth they were freed. The God that was the creation of their miraculous hands, with their thoughts they freed. And their God-creating hands, which were their weapon of their kingship, to its prayer they rose to beg in need and for return. Ungrateful of their blessing they were, and the hands insulted, humanity they cursed, since their rightful place was not crossed on chest in bowed servitude, and the fall began. Welcome to Locust Radio, episode 20, Shake the City. I'm your host, Laura Fair-Schultz. Your other hosts are Adam Turrell and Tish Turrell. And our main guest today is Alexander Billet. Locust Radio is the almost monthly podcast from the Locust Arts and Letters Collective, a network of anti-capitalist and irrealist artists who publishes the almost quarterly Locust Review Art and Literature Journal and its nonfiction theory annual, Imago. To get those, to support Locust Radio, and to get the second half of each Locust Radio episode, which is for patrons only, either subscribe to locustreview.com or become a patron at patreon.com slash locustreview. In a minute or so, we'll be <clears throat> interviewing Alexander Billet, author of the book published late last year, Shake the City, Experiments in Space and Time, Music in Crisis, from 1968 Press. Alexander Billet is a fellow member of the Local Starts and Letters Collective. Their biography lists them as a writer, artist, and general layabout based in Los Angeles. They've written articles and reviews for the Los Angeles Review of Books, Salvage, Jacobin, and the Radical Art Review. Alex and I go back to our days on the sectarian left many, many, many years ago. Going over uh, your biography, Alex. Um <laughs> That you're a writer, artist, and general layabout based in Los Angeles. 
that you've written articles and reviews for the Los Angeles Review of Books, Salvage, Jacobin, and the Radical Art Review. And Alex and I, as I was saying, go back to our days on the sectarian left many decades ago um, in Chicago through working on projects like Red Wedge Magazine in the 2010s. Ask anybody, it was really important. You can buy Alex's book at 1968press.co.uk. And in fact, you're required to buy it because the uh, woke conspiracy demands it. And buying it will give Ron DeSantis an embolism, but only metaphorically. Buy, buy the book. Uh, our opening song was Missing Mountains by the Enchanters from the album Post Harvest. Uh, you can find more of their music at youarenowallpopes.bandcamp.com slash album slash post dash harvest. <laughs> our opening reading was the poem uh, Feet Firmly Planted on the Earth by Ahmad Shamlu, published in the collection Aida Tree Dagger Memory in 1963 and republished last year in English in Locust Review 9, translated for Locust Review by Salman Safari. Aman Shamlu was an Iranian Marxist poet and intellectual. He opposed the Shah of Iran before the revolution in 1979 and was imprisoned following the 1953 CIA-backed coup against the democratically elected government of Mohammad Mossadegh. He passed away in 2000 at the age of 74. Feet Firmly Planted on the Earth is a retelling of the biblical, biblical creation myth, but from a Marxist point of view. So as we record, Canada is on fire and New York City has turned into sort of a post-apocalyptic yellow from the smoke and has the worst air quality in the world for any major city. Welcome, Alex. How are you doing today? Uh, I, I'm, I'm doing good. I, I feel a little obligated to tell uh, New York City, as as someone who lives in Los Angeles, uh, uh, welcome to the hellscape we have gotten very used to over the past several years. Uh, it spreads uh, California is everywhere right now. So my apologies. Welcome. All of that. Thanks for having me on the podcast too. Oh yeah. Forgot about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I'm actually really, really excited to be. Great. Well, well welcome Alex. So we're going to be talking about your book, uh, shake the city. And, um, I'm going to ask the first question. Um, you sort of divide your book into a series of concentric arguments and themes, beginning with the, the question of alienation, sound, and the city. And so, you know, the classical Marxist understanding of alienation is rooted in commodity fetishism, that the commodities labor produce take on a seeming life of their own, separate from the labor that makes them. You know, so you like make an espresso at Starbucks, but it's not your espresso, you lay blacktop on the highway, but it's not your highway. These commodities become phantasmagorical beings. The humanity of labor is concealed, but the commodities that are produced take on human or even magical characteristics, as if they just appeared magically in the air because of their separation or alienation from the labor that produces them. You know, this is a concept that was like first sketched by Marx in the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts in 1844. And this specific commodity alienation is generalized more socially. And with neoliberalism, there's a kind of acceleration of what's a commodity. Things that were considered part of the commons or privatized, or even things that weren't just fully commodified or more commodified. And so the very environments we live in become more and more alienated from us, including our cultural environments and our art and our music and our literature. And not only is like the album a commodity, 
the psychology of the person listening to it through streaming services becomes a commodity too. And even spaces that were already part of the market but had some sense of social community, like a working class pub or bar or diner or coffee shop or displaced. As you write, Alex, condominiums are built that laugh at the very idea of affordability. And I remember back in Montreal, in 2018, you gave a talk that included the example with which you opened the chapter, Song in an Alien City. Before you go outside, you write, you put your earbuds in, but now it's become second nature, unthinking and perfunctory. The world you create in your own ears is more bearable than the one on the other side of that front door. So like the commodified city has become more and more alien to us. Street life has been obliterated for most people in most cities with a few notable exceptions in the U.S. And we have this highly individualized, sometimes comforting, but additionally alienated coping mechanism, uh, the individualized song or film or image feed or soundtrack in our heads, an individuation of the performance of listening to music. And the soundtrack of your life is sort of between you and a corporate algorithm. So I'm hoping you could talk to us about what your thoughts are and how this works, how it changes the relationship between music and the city, how it changes the rhythm of both music and everyday life. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's that's a lot to to grasp uh, right there. I mean, like in, in some ways, I, I feel like I should commend you because in five minutes, you basically gave a synopsis of about like the first three quarters of the book, uh, <laughs> which... Uh, no, no, the, the, uh, well the first quarter of the first chapter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Wow. Yeah, it did. Yeah. All right. Well, because um, you go, you raise lots of other stuff. What's that? You raise lots of other stuff. I do. I do. I do. Uh, it's just that that was a very sort of thorough recounting, I guess, of the whole premise about why I wanted to write this book in the first place. Because to, to me, the question as someone who is a Marxist and also is very sort of preoccupied with cultural expression. It's something that's just woven into me. Uh, I've never wanted to do anything else other than have a life in the arts. I, I majored in drama in college. I uh, studied at the Globe in London. Uh, and then after college, uh, got an, interested in music journalism uh, and uh, literature and everything else. And just sort of, I've never... I've never pictured myself in any kind of life other than a life in the arts. Uh, but I'm, as I said, I'm also a Marxist. So the question for me has always been, what social function do the arts actually play? Uh, and in this case, the question is, what role does music play in human life? And the first challenge is to think of human life as something separate from capitalism, which we cannot really do right now, uh, or we find it at the very least incredibly challenging to do right now. This is where Mark Fisher and capitalist realism comes in. So much of public life and private life has been subsumed under the commodity form right now and under the need for the, 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 the priorities of exploitation and profit and the market. That it's very difficult to imagine a life beyond that, but that comes that create uh, that raises a contradiction, which is that human creativity, labor, is something that is also very innate to human beings and predates capitalism and predates class society, even. 
So when we're talking about music, I find it very useful to think of the fact that for most of human history and for most of human prehistory, music has been an inherently social, creative form. If you think about it, uh, before recorded sound was even a concept, let alone before it became a reality, you needed to be in front of someone singing a song or clapping a rhythm to actually experience or, or playing an instrument, whatever it is, to actually experience music. And so by its nature, you, you, you could not have music without sharing it, without being part of some other uh, communal space around you, even if it's just two people. Um, and then, of course, with the advent of recorded sound, which was in many ways a technological miracle, um, that, that starts to get enclosed. So you can start to see, um, you can start to see with uh, with the rise of the phonograph and with record players. Now you can just bring it just into the home. Uh, but even then, there's still an open air factor. And then you have the rise of of, of headphone culture come about the, after World War II, the 1950s, and then then cassettes, CDs, and now at the point where simultaneously we have little devices in our hands that can access the entirety, potentially the entirety of recorded sound in human history. And yet in order to listen to those, the, the primary way in which we listen to, those, listen to those is not a social affair. It is very isolated. It is very alienating. And so I have this image and it's an image all of us can, can, can feel. We have all been there before of just walking through the city, seeing the way in which the city itself, which is a, a conurbation of of human labor, but also capital, um, just sort of dominating over us. And the only way to make ourselves uh, feel even minorly human within it is to sort of create our own world, which is what the, the you know, which is essentially what we do when we are just listening to our headphones uh, as we walk through the city, be it, uh, you know, on public transit or walking down the street or, you know, so, so music has, this dual character, which is that it's something that very much cries for a sense of sociality and of solidarity even. But at the same time, uh, like everything else under capitalism, it's been enclosed, it's been commodified. And so really what I'm trying to do is parse out the, the ways in which these two, are in t the, the, these two natures are entangled and try to untangle them and start to, to ask what does an uncommodified music sound and look like? Uh, and I think if we start to ask that in a, uh, in a thoroughgoing way, we start to see very radical and even revolutionary potentials that don't just have ramifications for music, but have ramifications for the city itself and how we regard public space and our ability to recreate the world around us. You talk about uh, abstract space, uh, talking about Henri Lefebvre, and uh, that was uh, very interesting to me. And you also talked about pseudo-public space, which is um, such, a, such a, a dynamic of what's going on in the, the rhythms, as you call it, of public life, um, this, these spaces that are designed not to um, 
contribute to the collectivity of of living together in this in a in a place in a space but actually alienating people and keeping people away from each other and atomizing so um i i was really fascinated by by you know you bringing up these concepts of abstract space and pseudo public space uh i thought that was really interesting thanks yeah uh, i i mean Lefebvre has increasingly turned into a, 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 a frequent reference point, an almost constant reference point when I think about what the city is and what it could be. It's, it's interesting, you know, he was writing at a time uh, before you almost might say he couldn't imagine just how privatized and controlled and over-policed public space is today. But he nonetheless gave us a concept in pseudo public space and abstract space that, you know, space that is alienated from us and not just is alienated from us, but in some ways predominates over us as a way to keep us socially controlled. Uh, you know, he, he had a, a, a real great way of sort of elucidating that. You also, um, you also quote Cynthia Cruz in The Melancholy of Class, a, a quote that that's really, I think, encapsulates that. Um, she says, uh, when all that remains of the cities are glass encased shopping malls, corporate banks and chain drugstores, there's no place left to retreat except inside one's own living space. If, of course, one is fortunate enough to have one, uh, these spaces are sites of survival for the working class because they allow po for pockets of time where one can escape from the endless onslaught of work and worries that connect to a life of precarity. I thought that uh, sums it up very well. If you have space that that the city actually forces you into retreat. Yeah, and that's that's sort of the predicament we, we, we find ourselves in right now. Uh, I mean, th there is a, um, th th this is, one of the many reasons why I think it's it's correct to fight for social housing also, because social housing historically uh, in in the U.S., but I'm more thinking of the U.K. right now also, you know, you have these housing estates that also historically provided social space for people to actually, you know, go out in the courtyard or maybe there's a playground and some of them even have like art centers and things like that uh, for people to actually congregate, meet and have social time that isn't under the uh, the, the the dominance of capital, uh, like you get in pseudo public space right now. Well, it seems like there's a, a sort of constant fight between commodification and reification on the one hand versus reclamation of both music and space. Like I was thinking when you were talking about the advent of the, the phonograph and of course radio. Even before that, you had the mass production of sheet music in the 1800s, and there's the beginning of a standardization there. But then the folk tradition of taking the musical notation and changing the lyrics for different purposes, or later on in jazz, altering the musical notation itself. And it seems like a number of the strategies, the musical artistic strategies to fight that standardization, that commodification, reification, have had to do with pushing with and against whatever the latest iteration of that standardization is, if that follows? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think so. I mean, one of the reasons I think sheet music is important to bring up is because it, it, it is a form of standardization. And there's nothing wrong with standardization as such. But when it's under the auspices of capitalism, the only reason you need to standardize is so you can make it make what you're standardizing sellable so that you can make it marketable. That's the nature of commodity. The commodity needs a very predictable and controllable uh, rhythm. Uh, you know, think of the rhythm of the assembly line uh, and, 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 and things like that. And the, the challenging thing, I mean, the, this is what I mentioned in the book and what you allude to, Adam, uh, there, that jazz, because it took a cue, because it was a combination of many different types of styles, in particular, uh, West African rhythms and uh, instrumentation that uh, has its roots in West Africa, but also kind of, you know, this cosmopolitan collision with that and European folk music, classical uh, so many other uh, uh, traditions uh, that it it, 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 it it defies standardization. And this is one of the things that uh, they would even say about Scott Joplin, who's, you know, like the innovator of ragtime, that just looking at his, his, um, his compositions on paper, you lose something, you lose a kind of, uh, a kind of swing and a kind of uh, effervescence uh, that can't really be nailed down in a uh, uh, can't really be be nailed down and therefore can't be distributed as easily and i think today's version of that is the algorithm in some ways the way in which you standardize and narrow is is now done through through uh the web through the internet and and algorithmic programs and everything like that i think you bring that up in when you talk about the blue note which absolutely fascinated me this idea of a note which is between tones and semitones it's just um something that is also a metaphor for artists taking uh an, an approach attack their own rhythm um between what's considered good and bad and creating a new path for themselves i found that when that jumped out at me when i was reading that this idea of the blue note and and also creolization yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's important to look at the blue note and creolization because, frankly, without them, you don't have popular music as we understand it. You know, popular music came out of the way in which capitalism in its earliest stages even uh, annihilated space with time, right? Uh, and it created a global community, so to speak, for the first time. Ever. Now, the terms of those, community, of those communities were increasingly undemocratic and exploitative and uh, uh, colonial and everything else. But one thing we have to say, and this is, you know, I, I don't think this is not a, a, either a good or a bad thing necessarily. It's what we make of it. But it, it created a cosmopolitan dynamic within society. So it brought all sorts of different sounds and experiences and styles together under the same rubric uh, of, uh, you know, you, you have cities that in order to fulfill their function in creating capital uh, and creating commodities need to bring in workers from all over the world. Um, uh, you know, ships were like this too, uh, that, that uh, 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 trade relied on for the first couple centuries of, of capitalism. They were people that featured people from, from all over the world. And so the creolization 
and the the sort of meshing of different styles is something that's inherent in that that's when we start to get what we understand as popular music and we start to get this this rhythm and the standardization that nonetheless that even as capitalism needs it uh people and the artists themselves are kind of like 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 kicking against the limits of uh and i think that's one of the reasons why that that's how you get I mean, the blue note, you could say that the, the, the sounds and the elements that made it up uh, predate capitalism, of course, but the concept of it as a note that is uncategorizable, of sounds that are uncategorizable um, and unstandardizable, um, are, that, 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 that's when we start to get that. So it's, that's, I mean, this is what we understand. It, it may seem almost obvious, but it's the kind of stuff that E.P. Thompson talks about, that the minute you have capitalism trying to standardize time, you also have people rebelling against time. And I think because music is, by its nature, an aestheticization of time, um, you, you see that tension and that struggle reflected within it, within its sounds. And that's something, indeed, that uh, you can't standardize in, in uh, sheet music, as great as sheet music is. Those nuances that, uh, well, when you think of someone like, I don't know, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, who, who just has such tone in her voice and who, who you know, scat, you, you can't uh, write that, you know, you can't standardize that in any form. It's, it's intuitive and, and something that comes out of her very creatively. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, 100%. Yeah. I mean, the, the more human you make a piece of music, uh, the more it, it, it impacts and people can hear themselves within it. And that's something that the more you standardize it, the more that, 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 um, the, the more that, that feeling and that ability, that quality of it is that aura is, uh, mitigated. I wanted to ask, uh, uh, Tish a question because Tish wrote a novella that we serialized in Locust Review called Sound. In fact, we're still waiting on the last part of that, although no pressure. But it was inspired by Alex's research for this book, in particular the talk I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. that Alex gave at the Historical Materialism Conference in Montreal in 2018, which was also one of our last big trips before that pandemic. Um, I think Tish, Alex, Holly, Alex and I drank an entire bar one night. Um, and Jordy... Oh, yeah, I... I yeah, remember he took that. us on like a forced death march looking for French fries in Montreal. <laughs> it was like I mean, the French fries were great as soon as, soon as we reached there, and you know, no, no, no shade to Jordy. <laughs> I mean, it was like every block is just around the corner for like five miles of walking through. Anyway, whatever. But Tish, can you talk about what it was in Alex's presentation that inspired you? We've been touching on this dynamic of sound, the city, discipline, and rebellion, um, and how you work that into your story. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I actually still have uh, the notes. I have the notebook right here in front of me. I started taking regular notes and then I realized that, I don't know, it was giving me that sort of like tingly creative feeling as I was listening. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to world, I'm going to world build. And I decided that I wanted to build like the world that, that sort of set up the story that I was going to write. Because um, I, I hadn't really done too much of that. Um, so I decided like this was a world where there was like a sudden social resistance boom. Um, and there was the concept of sound as like a means of, of control and isolation. And Alex, you talked about, and we've talked about now, uh, headphone culture, 
which is like, you know, you've mentioned like sort of about curating the world around you, but also kind of a defense, but also fragmented. Uh, there's, you know, fragmentation from that. Um, so music's sort of no longer social. And from that, I was like, well, what if it was, what if it was made illegal uh, to consume music together because of like a response to like social movements? Because, you know, I believe that like, I believe that music is a, a tool of revolution because it's often like a story, which story is itself like, you know, a tool of revolution. But I, anyway, um, so then I was, you know, I think you talked about sound cannons, or at least I wrote sound cannons, because uh, I, I know that you talked about like music as a weapon. Um, so I was like, okay, music of the people then versus the music of control. And I think you can see that a little bit like there's a there's a moment of like citizen radio in sound being just like garbage disappointing. Um, so basically like I, I was like, people's music is like built from like the sounds of the city and their, their voices. And, and, um, and of course that gets taken away. And, you know, then you, you sort of talk about like the rhythm of capital. And from that, I was like, well, binaural beats could be like a, a you know, like a, a, a used against people as sort of like a, a punishing sound uh, that, that also like drives work, which is a, is a big part of what it actually does in sound. Like sound is, um, sound is like forced on people and silence is itself like illegal. Um, it just kind of, uh, it was part of what you, uh, what you were talking about in your talk reminded me about like being subjected to like corporate retail radio and, and, the difficulty of like relaxing out of the rhythm of like constantly being on too. And I thought of like how, how impossible it would be to live in a world that was just constantly that. Like I basically took a lot of what you talked about to its most extreme and, and, and built sound from that. And yeah. So thank you. <laughs> well, dude, I mean, you're, you're, you're quite welcome. When, when you told me you were writing a story based off of all of this, I just went, Oh yeah. See, this is exactly why I researched this because it is, I mean, you talk about world building and world building to me is just sort of another word for what uh, Frederick Jameson calls cognitive mapping. You know, the, the idea of not just how we see the world, but how sort of the map that we lay over it to get out of the predicaments that the world as it is puts in front of us, you know? And so, yeah, like it, what, what we call world building, I, I think is just like, I mean, this is precisely the function what I was talking about earlier, the function of music, art, literature, everything like that. And yeah, I mean, you talk about taking it to its logical extreme. The weird thing is I feel like things like sound cannons and, you know, piping classical music into train stations late at night in order to chase out the quote wrong kind of people, i.e. like, you know, young people of color is, um, is, you know, it, it, it shows that, that extreme that, I mean, this is the singularity that we're sort of headed towards right now, where the, the, uh, the, abs the most absurd version of something is something that becomes the reality quicker and quicker the, the longer we go through. So everything that, I mean, I love sounds. I love everything you've written in that so far. Um, and yeah, it's, it's this, I, I, I think that that extremity that you, you profile in it, you know, more and more, the longer we go, the less absurd it becomes, the more of reality it becomes. And that's unfortunately kind of the, the moment we're in right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause like, 
I you the fragmentation thing and like the the isolation and you mentioned earlier like the algorithm like I hadn't really thought about that but now I'm like stuck on the algorithm is essentially the exact same thing as like headphone culture but online right it 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 pulls us into just like this one individual news feed what gets us specifically outraged and it's it's essentially the same thing as headphone culture yeah, yeah, I, I think so. You know, I mean, if, if you if we look at headphones, the algorithm, the assembly line commodification is all happening on the same continuum, which they do, then yeah, it's like that the 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 trajectory is one towards isolation, alienation, exploitation, and more precisely, I think making us comfortable with our own alienation and exploitation and if not comfortable at least accepting i mean this is the stuff that adorno was adorno was given i i think is dismissed a lot of the time as being too uh manichaean about all of this stuff but i think he he he's probably looking at all of this and chuckling in his grave right now um you know the the degree to which social control has just sort of woven itself into um into all of this through everything we just said is 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 pretty pretty remarkable and horrifying I'm put in, in mind of um, when you talk about the atomization and the isolation of headphone culture, um, it reminds me of a parallel that can be drawn with um, the book uh, Ways of Seeing by John Berger. Um, yes, he talks, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I'm glad you see that parallel. Yes. Yeah, because he talks about how, our, how um, mass production or reproduction of art changed the art itself and the meaning of the art itself, where on the one hand you would, and let's put it in terms of sound, that on the one hand you would go someplace to hear and be part of a collective um, uh, experience, like a concert or, or, or a dance or a ritual that involved music or involved art, um, there's almost a pilgrimage there where you go to the art form and you immerse yourself in, in the experience. Whereas with mass reproduction or, or technology, now the music or the art comes to you and you can look at it in, in absolute isolation. Um, you don't have to. I mean, it can be a very good thing. Don't, I'm not um, a Luddite when it comes to technology and that kind of thing, but but it just there's the potential there, like when you say about Adorno um, pop music uh, colonizing us, um, it can be used to to further isolate us and further change the meaning of the actual music um, be, through our isolation, and um, I I found that. I found that really interesting how you flesh it out. I, I just want to say that um, I think this book really fleshes out the the examples. Like every time you bring up a concept, you really um, fill it out with, with examples that make it really clear and crystal clear for anyone who would read it. And I think that's a really good mark of writing. Thanks. Thanks so much for saying that, Laura. I, I, I really appreciate that. I mean, this is one of the things with, is, as someone who loves to write about academic concepts, but hates academic writing, um, that 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 feels like it's sort of always the balance I'm trying to uh, trying to strike to make these these concepts in, intelligible. Um, if, if for no one else, then for me, 
And this is one of the reasons I start writing, you know, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll be, I'll be reading a, a book or, you know, going through uh, some, some theory and things like that. And in order to make it intelligible for me, I'll have to like sit down and like really sort of, you know, uh, yeah, well, yeah, just, just write, just free write. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm somehow it becomes an article or a review or something like that. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm really glad you brought up ways of seeing, because I think one of the, one of the reasons that uh, John Berger and uh, Walter Benjamin and uh, uh, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction is, of course, as as Berger uh, was was very clear about, was a big uh, influence on ways of seeing. The question for them, I think, was okay if the aura, you know, the the ability, the the feeling of what it is to go to a piece of art as opposed to having it come to you. If that has been diffused now through the mechanical reproduction and electronic reproduction of art and sound, then the question is, what is what is going to replace the aura or what's going to create a new aura? And I think one of the things that they are talking when Benjamin talks about uh, talks about how fascism aestheticizes politics, what, po what, what communists seek to do is uh, politicize aesthetics. What they're talking about is, I think, essentially the democratization of creative production. That's what replaces the aura, or that's what becomes the new aura. That now, not just the right to see art and be and and consume art, and but to participate in art and to create it. That's now democratically accessible. It's free for all. It's part of a democratic process. People have artistic independence, and that artistic independence has a knock-on effect to the way society itself operates and its shape, uh, including the world around us, our built environment. Uh, so that that was, I mean, like I said, I was really glad to see that you, um, uh, to hear you bring up uh, Berger, because I think that, that that that's the tradition I'm trying to, to stand in with this, to say that there is a, um, that there is another potential, another way for us to experience and participate in uh, how our how our world looks and sounds. Right, right. I mean, aura. I think like aura can take on this almost fantastic. The term aura can take all this almost phantasmagorical quality. But what Benjamin's really talking about is yeah, is the performance of distance, right? what is the cultic performance of distance in space and time around an artwork? And, you know, one of the things Berger gets at in, in, in ways of seeing, right, is what surrounds the artwork. And he's talking mostly about paintings and photographs in ways of seeing, since so ways of seeing, but this is true of music as well as the context and situation that sur surrounds the quote unquote discrete work also becomes part of the meaning uh, uh, of of the work so like um he gives the example he, he shows up several paintings and then changes the music that is playing while he shows the paintings in the in the documentary and it changes the meaning of the artworks he then shows the example of uh people being executed um and then switches channels quote unquote to different things and that changes the meaning of the image that was just shown and I think a similar thing happens within and around uh, 
popular uh, music as well. And it's one of the things like where Adorno using jazz, I'm pretty sure to mean popular music at the time, misunderstands that there's a contradiction within the jazz that he's talking about, right? Um, between things that are homogenized and commodified and standardized and then a rebellion against that at the same time. And this contradiction gets reproduced in so many ways, both within the works and everything around the works. So the classical music being used to keep undesirable people away, there's a speaker in our town square that does exactly that, playing music that some of which at least should be transcended in some way Mm. and instead producing the absolute opposite effect of that right um forcing people away and like in tish's novella sound each district partially based on class has its own soundtrack Mm. of tones but even there the the liminal spaces there's places where those sounds contradict each other on the edges of those districts and i think that it's in the search for these sort of like places where we can shift the context and meaning of these things and also change the cultic performance of them, that there's like potential for something else, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I think that, um, uh, first of all, that's one of my favorite parts actually in, in sounds and in, in Tish's novella. It's just really like, yeah, hell yeah. Um, just the, uh, what a creative, idea of having each sort of district dependent on class having its own soundtrack that really i it really encapsulates everything not only that you just said adam but what i was trying to again uh illustrate and shake the city um but yeah the 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 interesting thing about popular music now is in many ways it's always a collision of different temporalities and again this is neither good nor bad it's what you do with it but today, when we can sample from previous works uh, and previous recordings and mash them together into something that is very much of the now, if you will, um, Yates sites, as, as, as Benjamin talked, uh, talks about it, like now time, time that can go in any direction where it just sort of opens up, um, is sort of one of the one of the potentially great things about uh, sampling again. This is this gets back to the democratization of the artistic, not just access to art, but the to the creative process, the the potential democracy that we're talking about here. So so we can create entirely new contexts. The fragmentation by itself doesn't have to be doesn't have to just end there. You can fragment and rebuild the pieces into something that is uh, entirely new and inspiring and pushes the imagination forward. But right now, all, all all it is is the fragmentation, where it's you know the 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 example of the you know the the you know the the the, the bath lotion uh, um, uh, the the bath lotion uh, advertisements in a magazine right next to a uh, a news story about uh, starvation in Biafra, you know, like this is. Uh, the, the, that that type of fragmentation has been sort of accelerated and made even more um, ever present. What does it mean to sort of create a new coherence out of that? I think once again, it has to be entirely democratic um, and necessitates giving everyone the full access to the full range of their creative uh, brains. This is related to another thing I wanted to a- ask you about, uh, Alex, about anachronism. Um, 
one of the things that Mark Fisher talks about in terms of hauntology is crackle, the sound of an anachronistic media, the vinyl record incorporated in newer digital recordings. And of course, we've talked about the Gothic a lot um, at Red Wedge and then at Locust Review, including the idea of Gothic futurism. And your chapter on anachronism and attack, um, citing Harvey, Lafarve, and the, the concept of heterotopia or spaces of difference, um, quote, either neither the soulless and abstracted space designated to isolate us nor the proposed concrete utopia that negates us. A sort of contingent variable space. I think there's a sense in which the anachronistic narratively, musically, formally plays a similar role, like within artworks, a sort of liminality with a radical potential. At the same time, there's the possibility of like an eradication of these spaces by capital. We see it all the time or reification of what remains, like what happens when crackle is reified. And I was wondering if you could talk about what your thoughts were on, on this strategy within music and how, how you relate it to the idea of acid communism. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, so, so starting off with Fisher's notion of acid communism, you know, this is, of course, very much sort of parallel to what Benjamin and Berger and uh, Lefebvre and certainly what I'm trying to, to illustrate, the idea um, that we can picture a world on the other side that is more radically democratic, that actually provides us with uh, a, a decent living, so that we can access the full potential of our of our, our of our creativity in a collective manner. Um, so, talking if if we're, if we're going to talk about acid communism, I think you know being able to we need to look at some of the some of the music that he saw some of that in. And coming through this kind of hauntological lens, I mean, in Ghosts of My Life, uh, um, Fisher talks about jungle music, which is, you know, a subset of what we talk about today as rave and, you know, the other genres like techno, drum and bass, things like that. And this is, of course, very sample heavy, very beat heavy um, and is deliberately, I mean, anyone who's been to a rave will, this is bald-facedly obvious to anyone even basically familiar with the concept of a rave. It's communal space. And it's, a, it's, it's putting everyone on the same, on a rhythm that they share because everyone's dancing. It's hundreds, thousands of people dancing to this very repetitive, hypnotic, and often very euphoric beat. Um, so this is one of the reasons why electronic music is such a, such a, a, um, uh, a central part of Fisher's framework. Uh, being able to to give ourselves the the sensitivities to imagine a different um, uh, to imagine a different way of life. Uh, now, w when it comes to things like uh, the crackle and the anachronism in music, I mean, there's there's you know everyone everyone has heard by now that song uh, "Teardrop" by Massive Attack. You know, it, it's been used in countless um, commercials and TV shows um, and things like that. But if you listen really closely at the beginning of it, um, there is a, a vinyl record crackle that is put on repeat. It's not just like a vague sound. If you listen to where the pops and cracks happen, they are repeated on a loop throughout the whole song. And... It's a really, really incredible. If you listen really closely, it's really 
quite incredible. So what do you get from that? You get sort of the, the modern, the modern production techniques meeting old production techniques and a, a sense that modernity isn't just about, or, or you know, a, a new world isn't just about leaving the old world behind. It's about taking the voice of people that capitalism has left behind and putting them in the driver's seat and putting them in the front uh, uh, on, on sort of the prow of the ship, if you will, um, to have people ever, where it's not just the rich and privileged that are experiencing history's what what history fully has to offer, but everyone collectively doing that. That's sort of the the reckoning with time, the reckoning with uh, the, the way in which capitalism creates an injustice through time. And what it means to to reckon with that and correct it means sort of bringing the anachronized, be it people, music, or art, whatever, into the modern. To, and, and both the modern and the expressions and the people themselves are changed through that through that um, uh, collective process. I think. Um... Could you just uh, say a few words more about uh, what you mean by anachronized, just uh, for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I think we all know what an anachronism is. It's, it's something that's out of time. It's something that is is sort of um, it appears from one part, one one part in the um, in temporality and time that should not be there. Um, you know, that's what anachronism is. And I think so when we talk about anachronized people, uh, we are talking about probably, you know, the poor, the oppressed, the exploited people who, even though we we are living in uh, the, 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 the modern moment, we don't experience it's the fullness of it. Uh, you know, just as a very sort of crude but basic example that I think to illustrate what I'm saying is, you know, when you're when you're rich, you can always afford the new iPhone. When you are, uh, you know, uh, poor or working class, you you know you, you have to wait a little while until the 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 price comes down. Or uh, sometimes you can only afford secondhand phones, like myself. This is uh, you know phones that have been like maybe refurbished and things like that. Th that goes for every cultural experience under capitalism the people who are able to experience its fullness the most are um are the 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 richest uh and meanwhile the rest of us sort of have to wait we are sort of at a further place back in the line if you will um at a, at a moment in time than than the the wealthiest and most powerful and um the capitalist class uh so when i use the term anachronized that's really what i'm what I'm talking about. It also doesn't have anything to do with saying that uh, poor and working class people or oppressed people are inherently backward. No, it, it actually means that, that we have a we have these forgotten moments of time that we can bring with us and redeem uh, in many ways and put once again sort of in the driver's seat of history. We've been left behind by the bourgeois rapture. <laughs> yeah, honestly, and well, hell, I mean, if we want to get very apocalyptic about it, then that's exactly what um, climate change is going to do. Also, the people who can afford the bunkers are going to be the most, the safest, uh, and you know, but the rest of us are sort of going to, you know, wait to develop skin cancer uh, out in the the the, the increasingly toxifying 
environment outside. And then there are the people who um, there are the people who can afford the latest technology. Then there's uh, the rest of us which uh, can't afford that. And then there are the people um, in the global south who are disposing of our technology and creating toxic dumps, or we're creating the toxic dumps for them to live among. Yes, yes, and that is. I mean, this is why the concept of salvage is so important. And I'm not just talking about the, the British Marxist publication, though I am a huge uh, uh, supporter and, and, and uh, proponent of, of their, their viewpoint in many ways. Uh, but the idea of salvaging history, of finding in the wreckage uh, something that can be redeemed and repurposed um, and even made beautiful again, how we change ourselves alongside uh, the rest of the world. Okay. Um... Speaking of time, uh, it is now time for some music from Diamond Soul, uh, namely the song Screens from Maya Me. You can find their music at diamondsoul.bandcamp.com. Both the Enchanters uh, and the Diamond and Diamond Soul recently played a concert at Balm to raise money for the local Starbucks Workers Strike Fund. They were both uh, great and uh, the money was needed because Starbucks, to the great shock of everyone, is not negotiating in good faith. So um, they're trying to pull a uh, rope-a-dope uh, until they can get the union locals decertified. Um, following that, we will have another song from the Enchanters, again, at youarenowallpopes.bandcamp.com slash album slash posts hyphen harvest and a reading from tish from their serialized novella sound inspired by alex's presentation on music in the city in montreal in 2018 and then omnia security to section three from xmas miracle two do check out omnia's work at omniasol.bandcamp.com
vice house in the Theta district was closed. Most Silver Palms patrons were either long gone or passed out in a dark corner. I pushed the broom across the black resin floor of acid room number two. My work phones played their slow pulsing tone just slightly faster than the ambient pulse back home in the Delta district, what we called Slate Town. Its ambient sound was soothing and slow. Work phones were designed to produce methodical drones. I wouldn't have admitted it, but part of me was thankful for them. When paired with a time-dilating energy drink, work went quickly. It was like turning your brain off. I removed my work phones. The heavy driving thump of the acid room matched the pulse of its home district perfectly. For three generations, someone had the job of sinking all the sound of the pulse that seemed to come from every building. Even the transition points between the districts had their own discordant rumble as each district's soundscape blended with the next. A shadow passed the door and I put my work phones back on. The manager, Mr. Abel, would have a fit to find me incompliant with the workers' protection codes. We'd both be fined $550,000 in possible damages to the Safe Labor Authority. When I finished my shift, I hung the work phones on the hook beneath the custodial curation sexton plaque in the employee lounge. The clear carbon plastic card on my lanyard was old, but showed little wear. Smiling in government photos is illegal, so it looked like a mugshot with my name 
Avi Park, printed in large font underneath. The weather outside was dry and hot, even at two in the morning. The streets glowed dimly of pastel neon. Each convenience store, digital cafe, and vice house had its own sign. Silver Palm's three-story, bright white palm tree didn't even bother to advertise the six bedrooms available. It took most of its money in from drugs and silence. Will security please report to Section 3? Security to Section 3, please.
Thank you for listening to part one of Locust Radio. Part two is being held ransom by a machine entity whose masters no longer remember how to control it. To liberate it and get another full hour of Locust Radio, go to patreon.com slash locustreview and subscribe for $5 a month or more. Locust Radio is hosted by Tish and Adam Turrell and Laura Fair Schultz. It's produced by Omnia Soul and Alexander Billet, with music by Omnia Soul.